Well, I don't know what you think of when you think of uh, the Colosseum, but I, of course, immediately think of my favorite movie, Gladiator. And I love that scene that just kind of brings all these things to bear when the Spaniard, the gladiator who's now a prisoner, has got his mask on. The emperor comes out not knowing this is the man whose family he killed and says, reveal yourself, Spaniard. And he comes and he takes his helmet off. Remember this moment? He takes it off and he looks the emperor in the eye and said, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. Commander of the armies to the north, true servant to the real emperor of Rome, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my, my, my vengeance in this life or the next. Ooh, man, great speech. And just a reminder of the brutality of Rome and the injustice would happen to him and to his family. Well, we're going to look at that question today. And in doing so, it is interesting because I got a chance to go to Rome in 1990 when I was a junior in high school. I did a two-month tour of Europe. And while I was there in Rome, it was really interesting because at the time, there was no floor to the Colosseum. So you literally could just see all the way down. And since then, we returned in 2009, my wife and I, and they've added a piece of the flooring. So you can now come and see where the flooring was because it was not easy to figure out where the flooring level might be at the time. But if you look down, back in 1990, but certainly in 2009, you can now see this intricate system of caverns and elevator systems all beneath the surface that no one ever saw. When you look at the stadium from the outside, it's gorgeous. When you see from the inside, the holding of 80,000 people at perfect views was amazing. But what struck me was the basement. The basement system was just mind-boggling. And I want to use that as a metaphor as we explore the history of the Colosseum today to look at something that I think all of us have. There's a professor named Charles Taylor, and he said that every culture, Christian, pagan, Greek, Roman, and certainly our culture today, which leans more toward naturalism and secularism, we have what's called basement beliefs. They are beliefs under our beliefs. Their beliefs are so so wired into our culture, we don't even know their beliefs. We just think they're truisms. And I want to propose to you that we all have basement beliefs. We all have them. And those basement beliefs are under our doubts and under our skepticism. And these beliefs are, are very problematic because they're equally as unprovable as the beliefs we might question. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus and, and not a follower of Christianity, you, you see the problems in Christianity's belief. And you say, prove it, prove it, prove it. But you may not realize that you have equally problematic beliefs underneath your beliefs, the basement ones, that cannot be proven. And yet you affirm they're true, you believe they're true, and you'd be willing to die for those things. So we're going to explore four, four of those together. My hope is that we're going to examine every belief, whether it's a Christian belief or, a, or, or an atheist belief, we're going to examine these beliefs and find out what belief system is most logical and reasonable, and what belief system best prepares you for the stresses and challenges of life. So here's one of those basement beliefs in our culture. We believe that science is the only gladiator for truth. You ever wonder why that is? 
We live in a time in history that believes the only way to know truth is through science. Now, science is certainly a way to know truth, but our culture, which teaches what's called naturalism or materialism, that the only things that are provable are the things that you can touch, smell, taste, hear, etc., with, with your five senses. Yet what's interesting about that claim is you can't prove that claim in a test tube, can you? The very claim that science is the only thing that allows you to know truth itself can't be proved with the five senses. More than that is that this belief that science is the only gladiator of truth, well, science is built on the logic and the law of non-contradictions that came from the Greeks. And did you know that Plato and Socrates, who gave us the basis by which we built science, would in no way have ascribed to that basement belief? Plato had what was called a cave analogy. He put people in a cave and he would light a fire and he had people walk in front of the fire and the shadow would be cast on the back wall. And he would say, our world is like the shadow world. We know things are true, not just because we observe them, but because they're shadows of the real world. The real world is invisible. And the invisible things are more true than even the visible things. Like, really? For example, he would say, you act every day and every month like there is such a thing called free will. You make choices like you have free will. You can't prove you have free will. But he said free will is more real than even the actions that we, we act out. You say things like there's something like love or integrity or honesty because you know they're invisible things that you cannot test in a test tube that are even more real than the things you see. Logic you can't touch with your five senses. So why is it that our culture has this basement belief that the only way to know truth is through science? Well, it's partly because of a man named Friedrich Nietzsche. <clears throat> if you've ever read any of his poems, <clears throat> Friedrich Nietzsche has a poem called The Madman. And most people hear the quote from The Madman, which is, where is God, where is God, we have killed him, we've killed him. But the next line of the poem goes on to say, but how could we have soaked up the ocean with a sponge? For we have unanchored the earth from the sun. And because we've unanchored the earth from the sun, we will no longer know which way is upward or downward or backward and where we're going. What Friedrich Nietzsche was saying, as a devout atheist, is for the first time in human history, we have unanchored knowing truth from ultimate reality. Even different religions who disagreed on God, they would have all agreed with Plato and Socrates that truth is out there, it's knowable, and that our pursuit of truth is an anchor of these invisible things. He says, not anymore. Culture is going to no longer know anything because you don't have anything to anchor your claims to. And you know what Nietzsche hated about Christianity? Hated about Christianity. He wrote about it extensively. He hated the morality. He especially hated Christianity's affirmation of the poor, the slave, the handicapped, their belief in civil rights, human rights, that's an invisible attribute. But Christianity affirmed this is an invisible thing that everybody has inherent value. He hated that. He hated the idea. He believed in what's called the will to power, that might makes right. Whoever gets the power makes the rules. And he hated Christianity for their compassion for the poor and their caring for the, for the downtrodden. Because he said, if you examine the known universe, what do you see in nature? 
survival of the wickedest. Might makes right. So our basement belief as a culture that we kind of ascribe to and, and say as if we don't even know it is something that's been unheard of in most of human history, that science would be the only way to know truth. So let's take that might makes right idea from Nietzsche and take it back to the Roman time. There's a guy named Nero. He was an emperor. He had a huge statue of himself to look like the Colossi statue. He put it in the place that would eventually be the Colosseum. That's what they call it, the Colosseum, because it's next to Nero's statue. But Nero was around prior to the building of the Colosseum, so he used to torture people in a place called the Circus Maximus. I've been there. It basically looks like a public park today, but it's got a natural mound around the outside for people to sit. And when Rome was burning, and through propaganda he got accused of doing it, he then began to blame the Christians. So he would have these incredible games at the Circus Maximus, and he had stakes all around the outsides of this basically outdoor park, and he would put Christians there, tie them to the stake, put pitch and tar on them and burn them, and they would light up the games at night. And here is where the Bible and Rome now come face to face. Because it's during the time that Nero is emperor that followers of Jesus are going to be grabbed by Rome and put on these poles. And Peter, one of Jesus' friends, is going to write a letter and try and tell the people living under Nero how they can have hope facing this kind of stress and this kind of duress. And what he says in his first letter that he writes, it's two different letters, in his second letter he says, I want you to know the things I'm going to tell you are true. He says, we did not invent cunningly devised fables. No, no, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We got to see God come to earth. We are firsthand witnesses. In fact, God one time spoke while Jesus was with us, and we heard a voice from heaven say, that's my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. We heard this voice. We don't believe these things. We don't just think these things. We saw and heard these things. And what we saw and heard can transform your life today because what we saw and heard through science and observation spoke of greater truths that Jesus spoke about how the universe works. Hold that for a thought. We'll come back to that letter. So our first basement belief is the idea that we think only science is a way to know truth, but that's really a unique claim that's not true of most of history. The second thing, when you come to the issue of God being unjust, I wonder why we think we can discern between meaningful and meaningless suffering. When you look back at your own life, are you always able to ascertain in the moment what was meaningful and what is meaningless? All suffering feels meaningless because I want to be comfortable. But haven't you looked back and said, you know what, I thought that was meaningless, but it turned out it really grew me as a person. It really helped my marriage out. It really set me up for skills I need for my next job. See, one of the basement beliefs under accusing God for his meaningless suffering is the basement belief that I have the ability to distinguish between meaningful and meaningless suffering. You ever wondered about that? See, when Peter is writing to these Christians who are enduring this incredible difficulty, he's going to write about that. He says, I want to give you some, some invisible truths that can help you in the visible world. In this you greatly rejoice. You can rejoice under duress. Like, not like, oh, I, I stubbed my toe dress, like severe duress under Nero. And look what invisible truths he reveals. Number one, for a little while, that this life is a little while compared to eternity. 
And that truth of seeing your life as a, just a, a small part of a bigger picture can help you give perspective to your sufferings. If need be. We don't hope for that to happen. We're going to work against injustice. We're going to fight for the rights of the prisoners and the rights of the slaves. And ultimately, Christianity abolished the games because of its work toward caring for the poor. So if need be, but if you're forced in that scenario, you can know it's only a little bit. He goes on to say, and you've been grieved by various trials. You can be sad about it. You can be mad about it. You can be just frustrated by it. That's totally appropriate. But through that process, it's not meaningless. It's through the process, the genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, will be tested by fire. Is what God is doing through even the most severe suffering is he's producing something more precious than gold. He's using the temporal suffering of life to produce something eternal that will last forever. Now, I can't prove that, but that is an invisible truth he's offering to people who use that truth to go through incredible challenges. I'll give you a modern example. The, uh, the codfish industry in northeast uh, um, United States really got more and more popular. And so they started needing to ship the cod all across the United States. So they would freeze the cod, send it over, but by the time you eat frozen cod, it just didn't have the flavor or the texture. So they said, what can we do to keep the flavor and the texture right? So instead they filled up these tankers full of water, salt water, and put the cod in it, and they shipped it, very expensive, all the way around the United States. Because the fish just kind of sat there, you know, by the time they arrived, they just, it was kind of mushy, the, the, the meat was. It, it didn't have the texture you're looking for. So one creative problem solver realized the best way to create the best end product for the cod was to drop a catfish, the natural predator to the cod, in every single tank. Well, how meaningless is that to throw a catfish in my life? Well, that catfish would cause all those cods to keep moving during the entire journey across the United States. And they would arrive with an inner texture and an inner flavor that made them their very best. In the same way, we don't always recognize when God drops a catfish in our life, it's because he's trying to develop something in us. Now, that might sound like crazy, the idea that, that suffering can be the, a perspective of it's a little and a bigger time, that, that it could be producing something that's eternal, like, like faith could be more valuable than comfort. But there's a lot of people who found that to be true, and many in the Colosseum. In the book, it's a Catholic historian who writes about the passion of, of St. Pertua and Felicity, two women who Rome said, this is now we're in the time of the Colosseum, you will reject and renounce your faith in Jesus or you'll be thrown into the, into the Colosseum. Well, Felicity, or Pertua rather, she came in and her dad begged her the night before to recount on her faith. She said, I can't. She picked up a vase. She said to her dad, would it be right to call this anything but a vase? He says, well, no, it's a vase. She says, that's right. And I am, I'm truly a Christian. I cannot call myself anything else. And she and her friend Felicity, who was either pregnant, it's two different accounts, either pregnant or just finished giving birth, both refused to recount because they wanted the genuineness of their faith, something eternal, was more valuable than giving in to the Roman government. And they were placed in the middle of that Roman Colosseum. They let out a wild boar. As the crowd was cheering for their destruction, the eyewitnesses of these two women just looked like they were looking up into heaven itself, like they were ready to meet God. And Perpetua looked directly into the eyes of this boar as it came barreling down on her. 
And eventually both of them were killed. The gladiator came out and, and killed them both. And the eyewitness accounts that they'd, they'd rarely seen such courage, such strength, and such confidence in some kind of, some kind of promise, some kind of access to some other worldly truth that was allowing them to, to hold to their convictions in this kind of duress. And they became saints and inspired people for centuries after. So if that seemingly meaningless suffering produced people who have eternal character and faith that just extends into eternal reality, we, we don't have the, the ability to see exactly what that means. Number three, why is it that modern people struggle with things that ancient people didn't? When you look at most of history, you don't see most ancient people struggling with God allowing injustice. Isn't that strange? That's why I call this a basement belief. We just assume that's normal and natural. C.S. Lewis talks about the idea that ancient man saw himself as a mortal in, the, in a witness chair, the defense chair in a courtroom. And God was the judge and God was the jury and we had to defend ourselves. We had to defend our actions. But modern man is the opposite. Modern man puts God in the, in the, in the defense chair and we are the jury, and we are the judge, and God, you got some explaining to do, and if you, if you prove to me that you're existing, you prove to me you got a good reason for this, and maybe, maybe, just possibly I'll believe in you. That's a basement belief of our culture that's foreign to most of human history and philosophy. So what is it that ancient men knew? Ancient men and women knew that didn't have them not only not shake their fist at God, but allowed them to go through suffering with joy, with character building in a way that modern people don't. Well, Peter writes, he gives four things. He said, here are four truths that you can utilize right now in your life. They're invisible truths, but they are as real as anything else for allowing you to go through stress. Number one, you need to understand your role as a pilgrim. Twice, he says in this book, I write to the pilgrims. These were Jewish people who were dispersed because of the Roman Empire. Beloved, I want you to remember that as you think about life, you're a pilgrim or a sojourner. You're just passing through this life. You see, if you think this life is all there is, if that's your basement belief, you're going to pound the stakes in and say, I've got to get every bit of joy out of this life. I've got to get every bit of happiness out of the joy because it's all i got. But he says, no, no, no. This life is just something you're passing through as a pilgrim to your ultimate reality. That gives perspective. It's during either the Civil War or uh, maybe it was George Washington, I can't remember. One of his generals was moving the soldiers toward the battlefront. And on their way to the front, they had to stop several times because it was a multi-day journey. And so they'd be pounding their stakes in and setting up their tents. And the general would always yell out, Don't pound your stakes too far in. We're moving out in the morning. Don't pound your stakes too far in or moving out in the morning. If you understand that this life is good, it's got a lot of good stuff, but it's just temporary, then you don't pound your stakes too far in. You recognize yourself as a pilgrim, and the ancient people knew this. Number two, you don't just understand that you're a pilgrim. He also says you're, you're to be a reflector of these invisible attributes of God. I want you to abstain from the fleshly lusts. The Romans were, were, were very generous with their bodies, but very stingy with their money. He says, I want you as Christians to be very stingy with your body. Only give yourself to the person you're married to. And I want you to be very generous with your money. 
Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul, but rather conduct yourself honorably among people who don't believe the way you do, the Gentiles, that when they see your good works, they see how you live, they see how you endure, they see how you, you, you persevere, they say, see their honor and convictions, they would observe what you do and glorify God. I want, it, I want what they have. That was one of the things that ancient people knew. So they didn't see it as meaningless when they went through suffering. They said, this is a chance for me to reflect God's values in my difficult circumstances so people would be drawn to the source of that. I can't prove that in a lab, but man, it's worked out in history. Those who had these truths. Number three, don't understand just we're a reflector of God's attributes, but we're also partnering with God. Peter goes on to write, he says, to this you were called because Christ also suffered for you. He left us an example. See, Christianity claims that the most perfect man and innocent man who ever lived, God, came from heaven to earth. And an innocent person who did not deserve any judgment was judged horribly on a cross. So why would I think that if an innocent person was treated so horribly who was God, why would I think that I as an innocent person would never have bad things happen to me? That's a basement belief. Now, we should follow in his steps. We should partner with God. He committed no sin, was no deceit found in his mouth when he went to the cross. And when you read the records of, of Pertua and, and Felicity, Pertua and, and, and Felicity, they describe that they were so inspired that Jesus, God himself, had died for them on the cross. They saw their chance to suffer for him as an act of thanksgiving and gratitude. I'm going to worship God through my suffering the way he showed love to me through his suffering. Well, that's a different belief system, isn't it? But you see how that would equip the ancients with things the modern people don't have? Fourth thing he says, he says, you need to understand your role as a trustee. He says, when Jesus gave us an example, when he was reviled by people, at his crucifixion, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. He committed himself to him who judges righteously. He says, God, what they're doing to me is wrong, but I'm going to leave this up to you to be judge. I'm not going to play the role of judge. Even Jesus, God himself on earth, entrusted his father to judge the circumstances. Do you struggle with bitterness? I do sometimes. Do you struggle with not forgiving somebody because how bad it was? I do sometimes. If you would see that God has entrusted you with this circumstance, is asking you to entrust him to be judge rather than you trying to keep track, you'll be so much freer. I was talking to a group of people at Horizon recently and we're talking about why it's so hard to forgive. And each person told different stories of why it is difficult. As we're sharing stories, I shared a story of uh, an organization that had wronged me pretty deeply and, and broken contracts and all types of things. And as I was negotiating with them and just trying to kind of say, hey, here's the principle and, and here's what I said I would do, but you kind of violated the principle of this, they kind of said, well, no, you need to keep your word. And I was really angry and it was very unjust, but I also felt like God tells us, Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You should keep your word even when other people don't keep their word. So I kept my word and it was about $5,000 amount of money and I was going to pay it out over six months. And instead, 
I prayed about it. And I'm like, I'm going to pay this in a one lump sum. Because if I don't pay it one time and get angry, I'm going to pay it six times and keep getting angry. So I paid it out. And at one time, God, I'm honoring you. I'm doing, I'm keeping my word. Even though I don't think they kept theirs. Send it off. And I was still angry. And Jesus says in this example that you're supposed to love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. So this organization was in need of a resource that I had access to. And they couldn't get access to it. And I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to buy this resource, get a a copy of the resource, and I'm going to give it to the people who wronged me. I went over to this organization, said hi. They didn't realize. (laughs) They still were clueless to how, even though I'd made it clear how, how... irrational or inappropriate their actions were. I say, yeah, I understand you guys are looking for this resource. Oh, yeah. Well, this is my copy, but I want to give it to you. It was a pretty expensive resource. And I gave it to them, and they said, yeah, thank you. And I walked home that day. I drove home. And I tell you, I didn't do it because they deserved it. I didn't do it because I wanted to do it. I did it because Jesus says that when you love your enemies, it's better for you. I'll tell you this. That was the day I was able to break the bitterness cycle. Doesn't make any sense at all. But by loving my enemies, it just kept me from circling that story over and over again, and I realized I could be free. By trying this crazy, invisible thing of loving your enemies the way Jesus did. That was the verse I remembered. God, I'm entrusting the situation to you to judge righteously. I want access to the wisdom ancient people had that modern people don't. Fourth basement belief. Fourth basement belief, it's, it's really interesting when you think about this one because I think for many of us, I'm not sure we wonder, why do we think we know how life should work? Ever thought about that? Like that's a really basement belief that we think we as mere mortals know how life should work more than maybe uh, an immortal, all-powerful being. Like, God, I know how things should have happened here. And I, and I get angry and when we get mad or we kind of beat our, our hands on the chest of God. And I think here's why. And this is why the Bible is so helpful. The Bible says something really, really powerful here. Peter's writing again. He says, guys, do not think it strange concerning fiery trials that come upon you. But rejoice that you get to partake in Christ's suffering. So I'm just going to take the first part here. I am always surprised when life sucks. Peter says, don't be surprised. God came to tell you life's going to be hard, so expect it to be hard. I was at a women's Bible study recently, and I said, here's an example. I tell you, hey, uh, next week we're going to meet together. We're going to fly in a plane. We're going to go to a a sunny place with lots of sand. Pack up and meet me here. How are you going to pack? You open up your suitcase. Sunny place with lots of sand. You throw in a swimsuit, some suntan lotion, some towels. You got certain expectations. You get the, the, the suitcase all ready to go and you show up. And as you arrive at church for us to grab the plane, I'm dressed in camouflage. What are you doing with swimming suits and suntan lotion? I thought you say we're going to a sunny, sandy place. Yeah, Afghanistan. I got my duffel bag. We're about to go to war. See, the Bible says that the Bible is much less like Disney World and the beach as it is like a war zone. Now, I can't prove, you can't prove it's supposed to be Disneyland, I can't prove it's supposed to be a war zone, but when you look at life, is it more like Disneyland or more like a war zone? 
He's trying to set your expectations that you don't know what life is. Life is actually currently a war zone of good and evil. And because of that, you need to bring the expectations of that to bear. This was certainly true for the Christians during the time of the Roman Colosseum. In fact, as the Colosseum battle and brutality just continued to grow, there was a a monk by the name of Telemachus. And he lived up in the countryside and had never really been to the Colosseum, didn't know anything about it. He finally, after years of being a hermit, wandered his way down into Rome one day. And he's looking around. There's literally no one in the town. He comes across one person on the street and said, where is everybody in this big town? And he said, oh, they're, they're at the Colosseum. So he wanders into the Colosseum for the first time, and he just sees the brutality of the games. He just is, is shocked that human beings are entertained by the killing of innocent human beings. And he also couldn't believe no one's trying to stop this. He makes his way down through the crowd, and he gets to the top of the wall that goes into the arena. And Telemachus jumps down into the marina. Imagine 80,000 people in the stadium. And one solitary monk jumps down into the center of the ring. There's two different accounts from history, but the basic alignment that he came out and he began to cry out, In the name of Christ, forbear! Stop. In the name of Christ, forbear! One of the gladiators came over and sliced him with a sword and he fell to his knees, now bleeding all over the place. He pulled himself back up and he looked to the crowd again. In the name of Christ, forbear! They began to throw rocks at him for delaying the games. One last time, as the gladiator came over to run him through, he looked one more time out and cried out, petitioning people for just having a conscience of justice. In the name of Christ, forbear! And he died as a martyr there in the Colosseum. But by that time in history, there was actually a Christian emperor who had kind of just gotten callous to the games. It's kind of what our culture does. It'd become a basement belief. Just okay to do that kind of thing to other people, despite what we say we adhere to. And that Christian emperor was so struck by the example of Telemachus, bravely standing up against injustice for the innocent, the history records that he outlawed the games the very next day. And the last time they fought in the arena was the day that Telemachus died. So here's what I want in this series and I want for you. It's something I think we all want. Don't you want to find meaningful truths that give meaning to seemingly meaningless circumstances? That's what I want. We all come across things that seem meaningless, and, and, and let's fight to get less meaningless and less, ju- less injustice in our country and in our world, without a doubt. Let's fight for that. And when injustice does come our way, when seemingly meaningless circumstances do come our way, what truths can bring meaning to these seemingly meaningless circumstances? What's going to help you keep going when you get hit? Remember that speech from Rocky Balboa to his son? Son's in his 20s and kind of complaining about life. Rocky Balboa, this isn't the Adrian speech. This is, uh, he turns to him and says, nothing is going to hit as hard as life. Remember that? It's not how hard you hit, it's how hard you get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. 
Didn't that ring true if you saw that, heard that speech? I want something to allow me to take a hit and keep moving forward. Jesus was a warrior. I mean, his ability to take a hit and to look at his enemies and say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. His ability to not use his power to come off the cross. I was talking to a woman in our church who's been going through a, a, a hellish amount of time in family drama and dynamics and just horrific things happening. And I asked her for permission to share a Facebook post that she shared about her perspective while trying to live through this family turmoil. She said, two years ago, I was right in the middle of one of the most awful and terrible seasons in my life. I won't share details, but it involves a lot of people close to me. For me, this is one of the most hellish, painful times of my life. But my prayer through this season was, Lord, let me look more like you after this is over. Don't let my picture of you get twisted or distorted because of this. My unconscious, my unconscious less buttoned up prayer was WTF. What are you, why are you letting this happen? But walking through pain with God will teach you real stuff. He is faithful in every single season of life. He will not let your pain be wasted. It's not meaningless. There are parts of my character now that would have never been developed without going through this season. God can make something good out of anything, good out of awful situations. My heart has deep scars that God is healing every day. Hopefully that makes me a little more like Jesus every day. The situation is not restored, but I have deeper, more constant joy than I've ever had before. I want to invite the band to come out to this last song. And when I hear her speaking about that, she speaks about what Jesus had, what these ancients knew. She's living out today in modern, real, beyond her circumstance, challenges. If you're here with us this, this year, we did a series called Live and Learn, and I interviewed a, a Navy SEAL named Chad Williams. And I took him out to lunch afterwards, and, and as we were chatting together, he just was asking about the last couple of years, some of the challenges we went through, having a special needs child, and just some of the uniqueness. And I was just kind of explaining you know, what I'd grown in, where, I, where God had expanded me, some of the challenges that we faced, what it looked like, and how we, the logistics of it all, and the pain of it all, not sleeping for 10 years, and not having a potty trained for 10 years. And just I was kind of talking normally about my last 10 years. I get done talking, not really complaining, just kind of updating. And, and I said, so that's kind of what I've been up to for the last decade. And this Navy SEAL looks at me. It was one of the most encouraging things I've ever heard in my life, honestly. He looks across the table at Mazuntes, because that's where you have lunch, by the way. <laughs> and he looks at me, he says, Chad, God has made you into a warrior. Me? You're the warrior. You're the Navy SEAL. He recognized something just in me sharing my story that God had, had made me into something more than I could have been. Not a warrior like a gladiator, but a warrior for truth, a warrior for life, a warrior for love. Let God make you into the kind of warrior that only challenging circumstances can bring out of you. Listen to this next song and maybe make it a prayer. God, make me into a warrior through my circumstances.